there's ghosts, ghosts in Oxford Street. Keep a sharp eye out and you'll see a street that's been to Gargoyles of rats in the shadows of cats who wrap their shrouds when winter attacks the ghosts of Oxford Street. Now, I know that means that not many of you might hear it, at least at first, but that's quite fitting, really, because it's about something that went out on Channel 4 on Christmas Day in 1991, which for a long time, I didn't think I was the only person that heard of this. I thought I was the only person that had actually seen it. But, quite by chance, in conversation with our old friend Gareth F. Hirons, who's been on Looks Unfamiliar a few times before... We established that Gareth had seen it and couldn't quite remember what it was and wasn't sure if he'd just made it up. So, Gareth, tell me what you remember about the Ghosts of Oxford Street. Very little, I think, is the best way to put <laughs> Oh, that's that. a good start. Um, yeah. So, I remember the hype, mainly. Like, it seemed inescapable for mm. up to a month beforehand that there was this big televisual extravaganza coming up, helmed by Malcolm McLaren, and there was going to be some singing, and that was about all I really got from it, and the Happy Mondays were going to be on it. And I did watch it, I watched it, and that was a particularly happy Christmas for me, because that was a new console Christmas. I got got a Nintendo Entertainment System that year, with uh, Super Mario Brothers and Batman. And I actually turned it off, probably for the first time that day, to watch (laughs) this, what turned out to be an immensely confusing, (laughs) I'm going to say, hour of television? I can't actually remember how long it lasted. I think it was an hour, yes. Yeah. Yeah. However, the memories have come flooding back a little bit since we discussed it. And one thing that I'd completely forgotten is the presence of the fairy tale of New York. Yes. And, but it's come back to me as clear as, as, clear as day yeah. now that that was in it. And I, part of me wonders whether that was the start of that being such a big thing at Christmas. But then another part of me goes, well, we're the only two people that seem to remember this program being on in the first place. So possibly not. But that's an interesting question, because I have always wondered when. Fairy Tale in New York, when it was out, yes, it was a big hit, but it was still quite... It was still an underground record in some ways. It was the record that the weird kids in school liked. Well, I say that being one of the weird kids in school. <laughs> but it was it was something that sort of came and went and wasn't that well received at some points. I remember a big thing on Points of View about the language in it, because they did it on Top of the Pops, unedited. People seem most concerned about Merry Christmas, your arse, which... <laughs> yes, that, that's not the one you want to be concerned no, about. No, no, but... Yeah, I, I'm not sure when the actual resurgence was. It wasn't to do with Kirsty dying. It was a number of years before that. If anyone's got any ideas, please find <laughs> in. Just, but it's a new mind performance of the original track, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the conceit was that pop stars of the day were playing... Well, I say pop stars. Rebel MC was involved. Yeah, he was. And I... <laughs> I know he was street tough and all that, but I, I, I think he was washed up by this stage. Rebel MC with DJ Rom, of course. Oh, <laughs> oh, you should have said. Obviously, if DJ Rom was there, it was worth writing home about. But yeah, and, and I think they were playing period characters. Yeah. 
Uh, and Malcolm McLaren was talking through, oh, and this is all what happened in that Oxford Street back in that day. Yeah. Um, and the Happy Mondays got hung, I remember that much. You, you were telling me um, Nasty Nick from EastEnders was in. Yeah, John Altman was in sort of playing... Uh, because the whole conceit of it was, it was Malcolm McLaren's history of Oxford Street, because he would have these amazing ideas, these brilliant ideas, but not a coherent way of forming them into something that everyone could get. You know, it's things like his, his Paris album, the album he did with Madame Butterfly on, you know, even the early hip-hop stuff. It isn't... It is what it is. It's the first things that came out of his head, which are all brilliant, but they don't have much of a structure. And this is just, as you said, then this happened. Then. It's a bit like in the League Against Tedium uh, when Simon Munnery says all history should be replaced with one long sentence. He continually says, and then what happened was. <laughs> it is like that. It's different periods in history. And John Altman does play basically a kind of, well, I suppose you could say a Dickensian Nick Cotton, which... At the time, I remember thinking, oh, that's a bit obvious, isn't it? But looking back now, I think that's a really clever sort of metatextual thing. It's much cleverer than just thinking, oh, well, he plays a, you know, a nerdy well on EastEnders. Let's have him playing a shirdy nerdy well from the past. It's kind of, it's drawing lines between now and then in a metafictional way. He yeah. says, sounding like somebody from Late Review. <laughs> No, no, I, I completely agree with you. Mm. Uh, when, when you reminded me that that had happened, it struck me as a genius part, <laughs> uh, piece of casting. And uh, of course, Tom Jones was in it as well. Yeah, which, yeah. which now that seems strange, looking back. But then we have to remember, Tom Jones then was not as Tom Jones now, and certainly not as Tom Jones was. I've said Tom Jones too many <laughs> times now. Uh, in around sort of 97, 98, when uh, mm. Reload came out, when he was yeah. suddenly culturally acceptable again. Yeah. He was working with stereophonics with... Mm. Catatonia, all this kind of thing. At that time, uh, I suppose we were post boy from nowhere, so he wasn't. Yeah. He wasn't quite as. I'm using the phrase "washed up" again, uh, as he was in the early '80s. Well, he was doing some odd experiments. I mean, the big sort of relaunch he had was he did a guest slot on the Last Resort with Jonathan Ross, which was really what restarted his career. But I think he knew he had some favour as kind of. In a way, because he'd been away from the UK so long, like the outsider of the 60s set. And he's quite happy to do things like, he did that record with The Art of Noise. He, oh, yeah, that he was He did an album on TV, TVT Records, Nine Inch Nails' <laughs> <laughs> label, which flopped. But it had this, like, If I Only Knew, which is absolutely fantastic for Tom Jones. Like, like an industrial house record with Tom Jones. That's, that's fantastic. See, uh, this may strike you immediately as a strange line to draw but but stick with it because I, I think mm-hmm. I can justify this I see similarities between Tom Jones's career and Kylie Minogue's career where they go through an, an experimental phase and mm. they're sort of throwing everything at the wall like is this going to work is this going to work and they mm. come out of it with a much better idea of what they want to do and what their fan base will accept so kind of Kylie Minogue has the indie Kylie phase, kind of does all that kind of thing, comes out mm. at the other end going, no, no, I'm a disco singer, here's the disco songs. Mm. And Tom Jones goes, works with the Art of Noise, Nine Inch Nails, a, a record company and so on and so forth, Hard House, and goes and works with Stereophonics and that kind of thing, comes out the other end going, no, I'm a sort of a gospel torch singer, yeah. that, that's what I'm going to do. But we can be thankfully chose to do this on a programme broadcast on Christmas Day and not be sort of David Tennant's assistant and asked to have sex with him. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad your parallels end there. Yes, but, it's the better mm. career choice, I think, from, uh, from Mr Jones there. But the odd thing about, as you say, Happy Mondays were front and centre in the promotion for it, but everything went very wrong for them late, very late in 1991. I assume after this had been 
completely filmed and all of the preparations have been finalised was it began with Judge Fudge sort of relatively flopped as a single, despite being my favourite Happy Monday single of all time. But as well as that, there was they had that disastrous appearance on The Word where they libeled the journalists who made up a story about them. They did some very truculent interviews with the music press. They were suddenly, you know, having started the years, potentially the UK's biggest band in waiting. They were really, really kind of in a very serious hole by the end of the year. And if you've not read Sean Ryder's autobiography, he talks about all that brilliantly. It's a really fascinating section of it. Staying Alive was supposed to come out as a single to accompany this broadcast. And there were actually promo copies out there and it got withdrawn because they just thought that's not going to chart, is it? And, you know, then began the disastrous making of Yes, Please, but that's another story. But it's odd to think how suddenly they fell off the cliff, which... This is quite. This is linking back to your thing about getting the. Was it the the ordinary nest that you got in nineteen ninety one? Yeah, because yeah. yeah, I got four albums really as my main present: Loveless by Michael Valentine, Fox Space Alpha by Saint Etienne, Screaming Delica by Primal Scream, Bandwagon S by Teenage Fan Club, and of course, I later ended up writing a book about all of them, which I can see just over there. Which is, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, buy that, everyone. But. That's really weird because, you know, I was immersing myself in those sort of albums and this band that had been my absolute, almost every waking hour at one point was spent thinking about Happy Mondays was when I watched The Ghost of Oxford Street, it kind of felt like a bit old hat, which is really odd with the very odd version of Staying Alive. They're also not in it very much. No. And you would have thought from watching the, the trailers in the run-up mm. that the whole thing was built around them. And I wonder whether the decision to feature them less heavily was somewhat in the wake of them having a, an Anus Horribilis. It could have been, but also I think the most successful piece in it musically is the the theme song, Magic's Back, by Malcolm McLaren and Alison Limerick, which did actually come out as a single. Alison Limerick was sort of... I don't know if anyone even remembers who she is now. She's like Q Magazine's house diva of choice. I think she had a few sizable hits around there, which I'm struggling to remember them now, as I've forgotten she is, but it's, I think it's based on Beethoven's Seventh, isn't it? And it's Really, really it's... a great song. I remember them doing it on the word. And credit to both of them, they didn't just perform it. They did this odd performance art piece, like they were carrying bricks around the stage and building a wall. I suppose they presume building a bit of Oxford Street. And, you know, she was joining in with it as well, this, you know, rave-friendly pop star. Going along with one of Malcolm McLaren's mad schemes. How brilliant is that? And Terry Christie looked quite confused after the turn. <laughs> eh, looking forward to that on Christmas. Eh. To be fair, I think uh, Terry Christian was just born with a bemused facial expression. <laughs> has, has never quite left him since. Stuart Lee has let himself go. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's been a, a good thing for his career, though. I think it, it really helped to, to get across the, the, the sheer ridiculousness of the word. <laughs> That song, yeah, I still get that stuck in my head occasionally. Mm. It, it was it was everywhere at the time. Did it was it released as a single? It was a single. I think it just got into the top forty. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I would have thought with the amount of almost mm. free airplay it was getting, it, it might have got a bit higher than that. But well, I do wonder if it suffered from Channel Four Christmas Day syndrome because. That's never been people's top choice reviewing on Christmas Day. I mean, in a forthcoming Lots Unfamiliar with Emma Burnell, we do talk about Channel 4 putting operas and things on, on and foreign language satires on Christmas Day. You know, incredibly festive. But 91 was an unusually kind of compelling year for me with Channel 4. Because not only did they have that earlier in the day, they had a thing called 
I'm going to get a blank look now. The return of the Magic Roundabout. Yeah, not not one that's registering with me. Right, they were just about to start showing Nigel Planer's new new dubs of the Magic Roundabout, the ah. more recent episodes, as part of, no one remembers this now, the Channel 4 Daily, which is the breakfast hard news show they had around now. <laughs> so yeah, the Magic Roundabout in the middle of that, but to accompany it, I think this was on at like half eight in the morning, he did the half hour documentary about how he'd been... It was a really tongue-in-cheek thing about how he'd been drawn into a conspiracy. You know, because there were all those mad rumours about the Magic Roundabout around then. That it was a, you know, it was all about drugs. It was a satire on the EEC and General de Gaulle and so on. You know, none of which was true. But Nigel Plain started getting like threatening phone calls from the characters in the middle of the night <laughs> and had things like they had a brilliant bit was parodying. You know that was it Secret Society, the BBC documentary about the Zircon spy satellite, where they talked to that bloke who like sort of almost choked. How did you know that name? I can't talk about that. <laughs> they, they asked Leslie Crowder about the cancellation of the Magic Roundabout, and he did that verbatim. And then John Craven saying he remembers being particularly worried about the about the older members of the cast, like Mr. Rusty, would they get more work? And then there's all credit to him for doing this. It's a bit where he caught. Michael Grade was head to Channel 4 at that point. Nigel Plainer corners him outside Channel 4 and they break into the archives and all the Magic Roundabout films have been stolen. (laughs) And he's guarded by a mysterious hippie called Whizbang. I keep hoping that one day... I had this on VHS off air on the same tape as The Ghost of Oxford Street and I lost it. I did actually think I'd loaned it to a former guest on Looks Unfamiliar, but they have vigorously confirmed that I didn't. I live in hope that that will turn up on YouTube one day. I would love to see that again. I think it was shown once, you know, like I say, a ridiculously early hour. It may only have been me that saw it. It's odd, though. This sort of ties into a revelation that I had a couple of days ago. There was only four channels at that stage. Yeah. I I don't want to get all kind of sepia-tinted here or anything like that. But, yeah, there was (laughs) was four terrestrial television channels Mm. in Britain. And they had room... On Christmas Day, the most TV watchingest day of yeah. the year, for that and the Ghosts of Oxford Street. Admittedly, it was Channel Four, which at the time was the more maverick of the four channels. Yeah. But it was there. Now you've got eleventy-six channels, <laughs> and they're all playing it safe. It'll all be reruns or Mrs. Brown's Boys, which of course is hugely popular. Mm. You know, and I, I don't seek to, to diminish that no, in no. shape or form, but it seems like they could fit in all this weird stuff when there was less time to fit it in, and it's more ignorable now. And so it doesn't get... Maybe it doesn't get made, or maybe I'm just not seeing where it is, but it, it seems like it seems like television's taken a step backwards uh, in the kind of risks that it would take. I can't disagree with that, really. I mean, are you looking forward in particular to anything over Christmas? <laughs> well, actually, I, I know BBC One's had a lot of flack for its, uh, its line-up, but they're showing The Good Dinosaur. And that's a first-run Pixar film, Disney mm. Pixar. First-run Terrestrial, obviously, it will have been all over the Sky Movie channels. That's still a relatively big coup, I'd say. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll probably watch that and nothing else. But that's that's been the case for me at Christmas for 10, 15 years now. If the, Apart from festive Doctor Who, if, yeah. if there is one, and there isn't this year, um, I don't generally watch it. And I think that's that's as much about... They're not making stuff that caters for me, which I don't have to, obviously. I don't own television or anything. I should, I will do one day, but you know. And as much also about the change in the delivery of content these days. Mm. I I can just go to Netflix or YouTube or WWE Network and watch something that I'm choosing to watch at a certain time rather than being beholden to the schedules. 
Well, that's why I'm going to recommend two things that will have been on already by the time you hear this. But uh, Mark Kermode's Christmas Secrets of Cinema, which if you haven't seen Mark's series Secrets of Cinema for earlier in the year, the whole thing is on the iPlayer. That's brilliant. The Christmas one is going to be spectacular, I think. And he might even talk about whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not. (laughs) We're not going to talk about that now. The other thing is there's a documentary about the BBC Christmas tapes on, which for anyone that doesn't know about them, they were very odd sort of bits of... They were mixes of outtakes and specially shot bits of ridiculousness that the cast of popular programmes did for the entertainment of, like, the backroom boys and the BBC, and they make these frequently obscene tapes with, you know, the cast of Faulty Towers, Tom Baker here with Doctor Who, Captain Zepp, Space Detective, <laughs> larking around, and... I can't wait to see that. He's going to actually tell the story behind these things rather than, you know, just snickering at the clips. Although they might have to leave a lot of people out. Yes, <laughs> I wonder who. Mm. It'll be interesting to see that with context. Yeah. Once. It's mm. generally just presented as the clips themselves, yeah. isn't it? So the, the stories behind them could be could be fantastic. So, Gareth, just as a closing, if you were going to recommend any um, festive listening to people, what would you suggest? <clears throat> Well, there's a, a perfectly good uh, podcast out there, a perfectly cromulent podcast, <laughs> some would say, um, called uh, Retrospecticus, which is me and my friend Tom Williamson talking about The Simpsons and modern history. We've done season one, all of season one, and a, uh, a special which is about flags, which kind of makes sense if you listen to the rest of it. Um, and we'll be back with season two in the new year. But for now, there's plenty of time over Christmas to catch up with that. I'd also recommend Looks Unfamiliar, which I hear is a fantastic podcast. (laughs) That is much too meta for me. (laughs) Okay, well, Merry Christmas, Gareth. Merry Christmas, Tim. And we'll see you in the new year. Magic's back. A great Christmas drama. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> Channel 4 in its early days did have a weird attitude to Christmas because I distinctly remember, because I was obsessed with Channel 4 when it first appeared because, you know, it was a new channel. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And being the sort of kid Very I was, I thought almost like there's a finite amount of Channel 4 and you had to watch as much of it as you could. You know, even stuff like For What It's Worth and Union World. <laughs> I remember quite excitedly looking at the Christmas TV Times that year and thinking, oh, what's going to be on Channel 4 on Christmas Day? And it was a presentation of the, the opera for the love of three oranges. <laughs> Higher Than the Sun by Tim Worthington. The story of Bloodless by My Bloody Valentine, Foxface Alpha by Saint Etienne, Screamer Delicate by Primal Scream, Bandwagon S by Teenage Fan Club, and how Creation Records took on the world and nearly won. Find out more at timworthington.org. The story of the Amadeus Quartet is the tale of three Austrians and one Londoner, who became perhaps the most celebrated quartet in musical history. A Christmas tribute to the Amadeus Quartet, next on 4.